Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts. This is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove, and we are ready for a fabulous conversation with a terrific colleague who is doing sacred work, work that we need to know about at Park Avenue Synagogue, and that is my dear colleague, Rabbi Rachel Isaacs. You know, oftentimes as a congregational rabbi, I I am deeply aware of the bubble in which Park Avenue Synagogue operates. We're on the Upper East Side. We have uh, demography in our favor. We have philanthropy in our favor. Um, we, We live in a bubble, and we do ourselves and the Jewish world a disservice to think that the rules by which Park Avenue Synagogue operates are the, the, is the lived life of community life uh, all over the nation and all over the world. The vast majority of Jews um, don't uh, live, they live a blessed existence, but not with the same blessings and not in the same way as Park Avenue Synagogue on the Upper East Side, which is why I think it's so very important that we are in dialogue uh, with Rabbi Rachel Isaacs, um, who is the um, director of the Center for Small Town Jewish Life um, at Colby College. But as you'll hear from today's discussion, it's really moving far beyond simply Waterville, Maine. Um, Rabbi Rachel Isaacs is the Dorothy Bibby Levine Alfond Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies and, as mentioned, the director of the Center for Small Town Jewish Life at Colby College. She also serves as a spiritual leader of Beth Israel Congregation in Waterville, Maine. In 2014, Rabbi Isaacs was named one of America's most inspiring rabbis by the Jewish Daily Forward. And in 2016, she was chosen to deliver the final Hanukkah benediction of the Obama administration. Isaacs graduated summa cum laude from Wellesley College where she also served as her class graduation speaker. She lives in Waterville with her wife, Melanie, and their two daughters. Rabbi Isaacs, it is so wonderful to have you here on Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's it's great to have you. And I have to tell you, um, we had a conversation prior to this when you came in the city, and I was just so taken by your vision and by your sacred work, um, and that the community now, by way of this podcast, can learn about it. So so tell me, perhaps as a first question, what is um, the Center for Small Town Jewish Life? Just let's level set the conversation so everyone can know what it is we're talking about. So the Center for Small Town Jewish Life at Colby College is committed to achieving greater equity in the American Jewish community 
working to ensure that small town Jewish communities have access to the type of Jewish culture, Jewish education, and pastoral support that can be often taken for granted in suburban and urban areas. And we're, our work is animated by the values of intellectual rigor. One of the component parts, one of the partners of the Center for Small Town Jewish Life is the Jewish Studies Program at Colby College, led by my colleague, uh, Dr. Rabbi David Friedenreich. And what we found is that when- Who, who incidentally was a, uh, not a counselor when I was a Roche Dan at Camperma in the Poconos. So I know you're your dear partner um, in a very different stage of his religious development. Sorry, keep going. It all comes back to Camperma. It all comes back to Camperma. Keep going. <laughs> but um, we really believe, and David did this work even before I arrived, that the type of rigor and insight and openness that's found in dynamic Jewish studies programs can really enrich synagogue life especially in college towns that are often sparsely populated and don't have very Jewish, uh, very many Jewish communal professionals. So intellectual rigor is one of our key values. Another is socioeconomic and geographic equity. And the third is doing smart work. And the way in which I would describe doing smart work is that we help Jewish institutions build collaborative synergistic relationships so that the Jewish people can benefit. When you're in a small town, when you're in a small college, you don't have the privilege of splitting off and splintering off into ever smaller segments of the Jewish people. You can't do it institutionally, you can't do it generationally, you can't do it denominationally. And sometimes people complain about it. Sometimes it can be annoying. But actually, what we found is that it's a blessing. Because if you don't have the ability to do it, then you're forced, if you want to survive, to build cross-institutional, cross-generational, cross-denominational relationships so that you can build critical mass and critical resources to create compelling Jewish experiences that will attract and retain and increase the numbers in the American Jewish community. So. If you come to Maine, you know, if you were to come to Beth Israel Congregation on Purim, which is coming up, you'll see that half the Megillah readers are Colby Hillel students, and the other half are people from our community. If you want to see who's running the arts and crafts, you'll see a rabbinical student from HUC working with me, a conservative rabbi, the parents in the Hebrew school, and our undergraduate student leaders. So we're constantly forging together across lines of difference to create something dynamic, creative, and functional in places where we don't have the resources to stick with people who are like us, however you want to define that, right? We can't, we can't split off. So the center tries to advise, we've done this very effectively in Maine, and now we're going national of saying, how is the local Hillel engaging with the local synagogue? How is the Federation engaging with the local Jewish studies program? Are there relationships between and among these institutions? And if there aren't, what are the resources that are right in front of you that you're not leveraging to create a vibrant, creative, attractive Jewish community? Okay, so fabulous and fascinating. And I have about 8,000 follow-up <laughs> questions for you. Sure. But um, I, I'm like, uh, uh, um, 
my own worst enemy here, right? I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm that famous uh, New Yorker cover, the view of the world from Ninth Avenue, where there's New York City, and then you go west of the, the Hudson, and there's Chicago, and then there's the West Coast, right? I'm born and bred in a large con- congregation in, in Los Angeles. My first pulpit was uh, as an assistant in Chicago at a large congregation, and here I am, rabbi of Park Avenue Synagogue. So large congregational life in urban centers is what I know. And I know nothing about small communal Jewish life. So before we get into sort of how to address it, um, I want to bucket like the ice bucket challenge here of like, what is the lived life of a small town rabbi, a small town Jew? I mean, I'm used to you know, I, we have an accounting department, we have uh, congregational educators, we have, um, you know, n- multiple cantors and interns running around that I don't even keep track of anymore. Like, what, what, what is it like? I mean, I don't even know where you are. You're in Waterville, Maine. I've never been to Waterville. I don't even know where Waterville, Maine is. And um, uh, we had one congregational family with a kid who went to Colby, probably more than one. But um, so so what is the lived life of a Jew who maybe they're, um, you know, that maybe they grew up there, maybe their family owns a business there, they're a teacher, they came there because they're a university um, connected. I don't know. But what, what, what does that feel like to be a nice uh, Jew or Jewish family um, in a small town? So, yeah, this is and then, and then to be a rabbi and then to be a rabbi and then to be a conservative rabbi. Right. Which is even more unusual. It's more unusual um, and it's more difficult. But um, Rabbi Lebo placed me here as a student rabbi 13 years ago. Um, yeah, I want to hear about that, like how it is you got. Did you grow yeah. up in a small town? No, I grew up in, in Monmouth County, New Jersey. So I grew up at a conservative congregation in Western Monmouth County in Manalapan. Okay. Um, Manalapan has seven or eight synagogues in it in a town of 30 to 40,000 where at the local shop right in Marlboro, not only did they have a kosher fish section, a kosher butcher in the shop, right? I remember it. So you you know a well-resourced I do, you know, and I know what it's like to grow up in a town. Not only did we have kosher aisles, we had a support Israel aisle. I remember that, you know, in 2000, that was uh, the local Jewish community's response to, uh, to the Intifada, right? Like, so a world away from Waterville. So small town Jewish life, one in seven Jews in America, so it's actually quite significant in aggregate, lives outside uh, the catchment area of a major Jewish community. So what's, what's interesting about holding an identity as a small town Jew is that I'm sure many of your congregants grew up in small towns where their families ran either factories or department stores or were small town doctors or lawyers and have that identity in a, in a respect, even though they live in New York now. But depending on where your small town is, it's different, right? It's different being a small town Jew in Alabama or Colorado than it is in Maine in some respects, which is part of the reason our national impact program is called Macomb, right? Because Every small community has its own sense of place. And even within Maine, there are differences among the small towns. So there are really two Maines. 
And it's not, it kind of goes according to our congressional district. You know, if you're if you're a political person, you know that Maine has a purple district and a blue district, right? So northern Maine leans conservative Democrat Republican, and the coast in Portland runs very liberal. The more liberal district is much wealthier. The more conservative district is much poorer. And Waterville, Maine sits right on the edge between those two conditions congressional districts. So I'm in a in a purple area politically, which I think is not unusual for those of us who live in small town and rural areas. And in terms of small town Jewish life in Maine, Maine is, according to our last demographic study, which was done a long time ago because demographic studies are expensive, Maine is the most intermarried state among its Jewish community. Maine is the poorest state in New England. It's the oldest state in New England by population. It is the whitest state in America. Uh, Although rural America is diversifying, Maine is still the whitest state in, in the union. And part of what it means to be a small town Jew is that you live in a congregation where you can take nothing for granted ever as a lay person or as a professional. If you want something to exist in your Jewish life, you need to be prepared always to create it yourself. I think that's at the core of what it means to be a small town Jew. You it's so live, different than in the city, right? Yes. You, you you, cannot, yeah. People in New York City just say, I, I live in New York City. I breathe the Jewishness. I, what do I need to do with it? It'll come to me, um, yeah. member of a synagogue or not. So in my synagogue, right, we, our synagogue, our kitchen is kosher. And it's kosher in a town where the closest place you can get chicken, kosher chicken, is an hour and a half away. So if you want kosher catering anywhere north of Portland, you know, we're an hour and 20 minutes north of Portland, what you need to do is basically come to my wife with a menu. And if you want it to be a flesh meal, right, if you want it to be a meat meal, you have to get the meat through the mail. And that's part of a long tradition. The older members of my congregation used to have their meat shipped up from Boston uh, on the back of Greyhound buses. And once a month, all of the Jewish families would come to the bus stop to get their shipment of kosher meat on the bottom of the Greyhound bus. Now we get it through Grow and Behold. But what that means is if you want meat, you need to plan at least a week in advance before having that meal. If you want a meat meal for more than just your family, you probably need to prepare a month in advance. And if you want a kosher for Passover Seder, which we've done every year since I've been in Waterville, what that means is that, you know, Mel, my wife who serves as the executive director and educator at my synagogue, she pulls it, puts out the call to the congregation six weeks before Pesach and says, who's gonna help me kosher the kitchen? And then there are just waves and waves of volunteers that come in with scalding water and and um, low torches. Right. We kosher our own kitchen, and then we cook our own meals, and then we run our own seder. There, you know, there's no caterer, there's nobody you can call for the own egg. And um, if you want a Hebrew school, you're going to have to volunteer as a parent constantly, from curricular development to being with your kids to supporting things. So being a small town Jew is 
you can't pay somebody else to do it and you can't assume it's going to be there when you need it. Mm. And, um, and then sometimes even when you do plan and you try your best to, to create a holy Jewish experience, sometimes it falls through because the numbers and the resources aren't there. You know, right. Which I guess is, is a heavy responsibility, but it's also uh, an opportunity for everyone to feel that they are stakeholders in uh, their Jewish life. I, I want to pivot for a second and then eventually get to um, what the center ac actually does, which you began with. But I couldn't help but noticing in, in your introductory remarks, Rabbi, um, you kept using the word equity. I think I counted at least three times so far you've used it. And I understand, I get what you just said about small town and it all depends on you and, you know, I, I got it. But what, what does equity have to do with any of this? Let me give an example. Sure. Right? If we as an American Jewish community believe that every Jew who wants to be buried in a Jewish cemetery can be buried in a Jewish cemetery, then what that means is that the American Jewish community is going to have to reallocate certain resources to ensure that every Jew who wants a Jewish funeral and wants to be buried has the resources to do it. So we're the voice because often the perception of economic challenges in the Jewish community is that that's a problem that Haradim have and Holocaust survivors, that those are the people who are poor in our community. And that's not true. There's poverty throughout the American Jewish community, even within Manhattan, for example. The difference is, is that if you're in New York, if there's somebody close to you, Rabbi Cosgrove, they could come to you and say, I can't afford it. Can you help me? And then you can go to a whole host of different resources to pay for it. But if you're a small town Jew and your congregation can't afford a rabbi anymore, well, where do you go? Who's going to bury you? Who's going to help you get the money to buy a plot? I mean, this is biblical, this is basic. Or I'll give you another example. There was a local conservative gathering in Boston right before the pandemic, and a main congregation wanted to attend. And they reached out to the movement body and said, we can't afford it. But we really wanna come, because this is a few times, this is, it's so rare that something is driving distance for us. And they were told, well, you can look at Airbnbs in, in the area, but you know that's a good way for you to cut costs. And that community was never followed up with. And guess what? There were zero Jews from Maine. You would think that the conservative movement has no problem attracting people that were healthy and in good shape. Right. With it, this, this conversation goes sideways very yes. quickly because I assume, you know, Park Avenue Synagogue makes a certain allocation to the national conservative movement every year. We're proud to do it. We're doing our part. Our members delightfully support it. But I assume that goes towards supporting um, the communities who need it. And you're telling me that's not necessarily so. No, in large part because it's not on people's radar, right? And nobody followed up to say, why didn't you come? And part of it has to do with a shame of saying, you didn't help me get there. And you made me feel like I didn't belong because I couldn't afford it. And it wasn't an individual, it was a whole congregation, right? But we do these things all the time. We put a price tag for Israel trips and say, apply for scholarships. But what does it mean to ask for scholarships all the time? And then who in our community isn't going to Israel? Who never gets to feel the comfort of being in a Jewish country? It's often the most isolated and needy Jews in our country that 
just can't even imagine getting close enough to having the resources to fly and go. But we don't price things as an American Jewish community or create an experience with the thought of how do we price things in such a way? How do we make sure that anybody whose heart draws them to Torah, to the Torah of Israel, the God of Israel, the land of Israel, how do we make sure that everyone who has that desire in their heart gets to achieve that goal, gets to learn that Torah, gets to be in community, that gets the dignity and the comfort of being in community and being led by a Jewish communal professional? We don't think that way. Right. So if there's a kid, um, let's put a human face on it, growing up in Waterville, Maine, right? And you're the rabbi and you say, oh, this kid, they could do with a summer at Camp Ramah. Like if I could, you know, I see this kid has a spark. He or she is asking all the right questions. What if I could have this, this child spend their summers in an immersive Jewish environment? It'll make all the difference in the world. Um, what, what, how, what do you as a rabbi or what, what arrows in your quiver do you have? Are you calling the Ramah? Are you counting on, you know, some benefactor? Is that what the Center for Small Town Jewish Life does? So there are funds through one happy camper fund, for example, but you don't necessarily get placed at the camp that you want and they don't necessarily fund more than one summer. So there are some scholarships there. Sometimes you can call the Ramah and then the Ramah can come in and pay those scholarships. I now have many more resources than I did when I started in my rabbinate, so I can call upon my discretionary fund to help that student. But what's interesting, and this is where class is about something more than money, I had a conversation with one of my close colleagues, a reform colleague down in Augusta when I first took my rabbinate in Waterville. And she said to me, Rachel, you need to be careful when you send your kids from Waterville to Ramah in the same way that often I need to be careful when I send my kids to URJ camps. And it's because even if you can get the kid there, you can pay the tuition, you can pay the transportation, you have to be aware of the fact that that kid might be teased for not having the right clothes and for not having the right accessories that Jews from suburban and urban areas take for granted because they feel so out of place. A, they're not connected to people because they're isolated. So they don't have their friends from day school or from synagogue. But even beyond that, if you're going fully on scholarship, are you wearing all the right brands? Right. Are you going on vacation to all the same places? And then what ends up happening sometimes is that Jewish kids who grew up in small towns that experience backfires because they feel the shame and alienation for not having the right things. And because they say, oh, the Jewish community outside of Maine, the real Jewish community is wealthy and I'm not. I guess I really don't belong there. And then that's why I've heard many times, this is anecdotal, I think would be interesting to study. Even my most passionate um, Jewish kids sometimes, when I say to them, are you going to Hillel when you go to college? And they're like, I just don't fit in there. And these are kids that studied Mishnah with my wife once a week, right, when they were in high school, that loved Judaism. But they just sense, because of issues of class, that they don't belong. And so class is, a, is about culture, money, and power. And, and it often operates in ways that are not just about scholarships and about paying bills. Right. So let's turn our attention to, to um, the Center for Small Town Jewish Life. So. Is, you, you talked about 
resource allocation. You talked about creating partnerships, creating sort of para-rabbinic roles that people feel empowered. Um, how, how does the, the, the vision unfold for um, what you do at the Center for Small Town Jewish Life? So there's work that we do in Northern New England, and then there's work that we do outside of Northern New England. So within Northern New England, which I used to just, I used to say Maine, but now we have New Hampshire and, and Northern Massachusetts as well in some of our programs, we run large gatherings um, and low cost educational programs to create a sense of regional community where people feel comfortable and understood as Jews in rural uh, Northern New England. Um, and we run all of those events at prices and in ways that people can afford. So one is the main conference for Jewish life that before the pandemic was pulling in 350 people from throughout the region. And we'll have keynote speakers like Dennis Ross. We'll have musicians at our fall Shabbat home like Nefesh Mountain or Neshama Karlbach. None of our individual synagogues can ever pull off something that ambitious because none of our synagogues can get those kinds of numbers. But when we bring everybody, when it's every synagogue and every Hillel in the state, well, then all of a sudden you have the dollars and the people so that it feels exciting and it, and it enriches you. It doesn't feel depressing and desperate, which can sometimes it can feel that way when you're struggling to make minion on uh, Shabbos after Shabbos. Right. So we have those those big programs. And in many ways, those programs serve as proof of concept that actually. Most of if, if people are thinking about small town Jewish life, usually they think that's the past and it's going to die or Chabad can serve those communities. And, you know, great. It's great that Chabad serves those communities. Bless them. But if you're not interested in Chabad, if you want a progressive Jewish community, meaning reform, conservative, any non-Orthodox Jewish community, the thought is our clergy are paid so much. It costs so much to maintain our synagogues we can't actually find a way for these synagogues to survive and thrive. But actually when all of the synagogues and Hillel's in Maine started working collaboratively, what they found is that people were so fired up and so connected that all of the individual synagogues and Hillel's grew independently by virtue of the energy and the support that came from the collaboration. Really what we did in Maine is we created an ecosystem. And those events, spurred into other events as well. We run a low-cost summer camp in Augusta for $5 a day. It's not free because that's not dignified, but it's not at a cost that most people would find challenging. And it's and it is staffed by Jewish teens and by Colby students. We have a Jewish teen network where kids feel comfortable with each other because they're all from Maine. And they do intensive Jewish learning and social activities five times a year. And then they fly down at the end of every year to a major Jewish community. This year, it's going to be New York. And they get to experience a full weekend of New York Jewish life. You know, we did Boston. We want to do D.C. and Montreal, right? But then there's the national work. Because basically, we always had an ambition of saying, Maine is the laboratory. It's where we perfect our craft. And it's our home. But how do we take that wisdom and translate it? to other Mikomo, to other places around the country that might have regional differences, but face the same socioeconomic and cultural issues or similar ones. We don't call it replication because you can't replicate Maine and Arizona. 
It doesn't work. But you can translate. You can translate the best practices. You can translate um, the support and the wisdom. And so we have an online training program for clergy and lay leaders in small communities that's specifically geared to the reality of their synagogues, because often when small town synagogues engage in trainings for large synagogues, they feel unseen and desperate and frustrated because they can't, they don't have the resources to hire people to do things. So they need to be seen and served as they are. And the other part of the program beyond training the lay leaders and the clergy, there are two other critical parts. We also help those congregations navigate the search process, which can be extraordinarily difficult right. to navigate for anybody, so they lose hope in hiring a rabbi. And then the last part is bringing those clergy and those lay leaders from around the country to Maine so that they can actually see the model in practice and find a community that is ever-growing of Jews like them that understand their struggles, but also find the unique beauty in a, a DIY Judaism where it's really all heart to keep it going every day. Rabbi Isaacs, what you are doing is Avodat Kodesh, sacred work with the Center for Small Town Jewish Life. I want to wish you Hatzlacha, success. I, want, I hope that we're a stop on your visit to New York. Um, you always have a home here at Park Avenue Synagogue. And... Um, and I understand why you have been named one of America's most inspiring rabbis. You certainly inspire all of us. Um, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, Check out PASYN.org. See you in Shul. Hallelujah, Hallelujah.